I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. Thanks for listening to Cauldron, A History of the World, Battle by Battle. I'm your host, Colin Burke, and today we have a great episode for you. But let's get some of the housekeeping stuff squared away first. All right, so thank you for bearing with me on some scheduling issues. I had hoped to get Adwa and Shiloh out. Both turned into much larger projects than I had planned on. So I'm going to shelve them and hopefully do them next year close to their anniversary. Moving forward, the research process has been tweaked and some personal stuff has been squared away, which should lead to a quicker episode turnaround. And again, the goal is to have two episodes a month with their corresponding theory casts as well. And as you know, we are on Facebook and Patreon. Just look us up at Cauldron Podcast and uh, throw us a like and a follow. Or if you're feeling especially kind, get on iTunes and rate and review us. Theorycast number two is almost done. I'm just hoping to get a couple more listener emails. So if you haven't participated yet, go to cauldronpodcast.com, listen to the Huns on the Run Battlecast, and then go to the Your Theories page to submit. So I just wanted to shout out real quick to the National Trust for Scotland, which was a really great resource um, when I was putting this episode together. They were extremely helpful in terms of setting a time and place for these events. So, if you find this episode interesting and want to learn more, or even better, want to take a trip to the battlefield itself, be sure to go to www.nts.org.uk and check it out. All right, let's head across the pond to the damp, chilly morning air of the highlands. On the 16th of April, 1746, where a band of tired, hungry, and weary men wait for their enemy, their destiny, and for many, their death at Culloden. I usually know when I have screwed up. I think we all have a good sense of when and where things have kind of gone awry in our everyday lives. Most things are pretty straightforward. You leave dinner in the oven too long, it burns. Uh, You're late for work, you probably hit the snooze button too often. Uh, The hangover you have is most likely thanks to the extra three or four shots you took last night. Cause and effect stuff at its most basic. All very normal and simple, really, which is why when I read about the great moments in history, I wonder when the people involved knew that things had gone awry. Is it the same kind of simple cause and effect that they're able to put together? Uh, Like Caesar. He probably had no idea that he was going to get murdered until the moment the first knife bit into his flesh. 
Napoleon must have had some inkling when the first snowflakes started to fall that things had gone bad. Or, or what about uh, Amelia Earhart? Where over the Pacific did it sink into her mind that this wasn't all going to work out? With the law banging on the door, did Bernie Madoff look back at one specific thing and say, Oh shit. The, the, the captain of the Titanic had a moment between impact and realization that the ship was lost. Where was it? I think of Anne Boleyn. However involved she was in the power politics, she still died unfairly. And I, I wonder, when did she know the game was up? And then, of course, there are those that probably never see the futility of their grand plans. The uh, blissfully ignorant, the idiotically naive, the dangerously blind. Bonnie Prince Charlie was one of the latter. The story of Culloden Moore has many beginnings, but for the sake of brevity and sanity, I'm just going to hit the basics. This flyby technique, as I'm calling it, will be the method moving forward in each episode where I'm going to try and contextualize and make sense of the huge events that lead up to each battle without going into huge amounts of detail. Otherwise, each episode would take frickin' forever just to write, let alone record and edit. So, just gonna fly by real quick and we'll get us right up to date. So in the 1500s, maybe the most famous king in English history, Henry VIII, decided he wanted to trade in his wife for a newer, younger model. The resulting dispute with the papacy and the creation of the Church of England led to years of turmoil and death. After a Catholic queen and violence, England found some short-lived stability under Elizabeth. For all the great and wonderful things Elizabeth gave to her country, she was, however, unable to give security. Like her father, she died with no male heir, and so the throne passed to the next in line, James of Scotland, a Stuart descendant of Henry VIII's family. His son Charles would take an overly aggressive stance with Parliament and the Puritans, and in 1642, parliamentary and royal forces mobilized for combat, kicking off the English civil wars. In 1649, Charles was turned over to Parliament and executed. What followed was a series of small yet bloody civil wars and the Cromwellian conquest and the protectorate, which all led to the cessation of hostilities, the reinstatement of Parliament, and the crowning of Charles II. His son James II occupied a significantly less powerful throne. So when James made moves to encourage religious liberty, even going so far as to allow Catholics to occupy high positions in the government, his enemies acted. And what followed is called the Glorious Revolution, a basically bloodless affair that saw James II flee the country and toss his great seal of state into the Thames, essentially abdicating the throne. The man who filled the void was William of Orange, James's son-in-law who had landed with a small army and with some key defections and the support of some wealthy Protestants, he was able to take the throne and rule with his wife Mary for years. At this point, Parliament passed a law stating that no Catholic could ever ascend to the throne. So when William and Mary were followed by James's daughter, Anne, and she died with no child or no heir to the throne, there was a vacancy in London. 
The Stuart line, which had been living in luxury in a palace in France, had a far and away better, more direct legal claim to the throne. But because of that law passed about Catholics not being king, Parliament offered the throne to the Hanoverians, who had a much more tenuous claim, but were solid Protestants. So with George I sitting in what he believed to be his throne, the son of James II, James Francis Stuart, otherwise known as the Old Pretender, sat in France plotting his revenge. In 1715, with the aid of French forces, he made an attempt at fomenting rebellion, but was repulsed and retreated back to his French safe space. After that setback, the Old Pretender would try again and again to return to the English throne, all the while grooming his son, the Young Pretender, or to history, Bonnie Prince Charlie, for his role and his rule. The War of the Austrian Succession is a massive event with many battles that we will go into at some point, but for our purposes, it was really just the training ground for some of the key players in the battle to come. In 1745, the French armies beat an allied English, Dutch, and German force at the Battle of Fontenoy, and the losing army was led by the son of the English king, the Duke of Cumberland. Cumberland used outdated frontal infantry assaults in an attempt to push the French off of their positions. From this, he would learn the importance of flanking positions and layered lines. Elsewhere in Flanders, Bonnie Prince Charlie had been learning the art of generalship. In 1744, the young pretender was supposed to take an invasion force and fleet across the Channel and return the crown of England to its rightful owner, his Stuart father. Unfortunately for him, the fleet and force never really got going, and the French decided not to invest any further into what they feared would be another failure. Undeterred, with his Scottish sense of adventure and a dangerous sense of surety bordering on stupidity, Bonnie Prince Charlie set sail for Scotland in 1745. The young pretender landed with a tiny group of men, maybe as little as seven, in July 1745, with little money and almost no gear, on the island of Eriskay in northwest Scotland. And so began what would be forever known as the 45. Northern Scotland had a large amount of Catholic clans, or at least clans that believed in the birthright of the Stuart line. And so fairly quickly, Bonnie Prince Charlie was able to build his numbers and move with a moderately strong force. These men were known as Jacobites, a term derived from Jacobus, which is itself a derivation of the Latin name for James. By September... Bonnie Prince Charlie and his Jacobite forces were made up of some 2,000-plus men from seven different clans. They moved south, taking the city of Edinburgh, forcing the government forces under Sir John Cope to retreat south. Cope was smart enough to know that his green, disorganized army was the only sizable force around, and without a better idea of what was happening, his best option was just to give ground. Unfortunately for Cope... Taking Edinburgh gave the Jacobite cause more weight, and so their numbers continued to grow, eventually reaching a size that Bonnie Prince Charlie felt was strong enough to follow Cope, and so began a, a cat-and-mouse game across Scotland. 
With the Jacobites chasing the government forces all the way to the sea, there was no more room for maneuver, and a battle was in the offing. At Preston Pans, the government army under Sir John Cope was broken in less than 15 minutes by a truly Gaelic tactic, the Highland Charge. Used in both Scotland and Ireland, the Highland Charge was a highly effective method of attack. Between 1644 and 1746, it won as many as eight major battles. Speed and the use of firearms as an offensive weapon were key. Up until this point, guns were seen as basically a better form of spear. It kept your enemy away and could stop most anything in front of it. The Highland Charge flipped this whole notion of static defense by lining up in formation and then advancing quickly within 60 to 20 yards. At that point, the Highlanders would fire a wild but close and deadly volley, toss their muskets to the side, and charge at full tilt, screaming and yelling to distract and disorient, basically the equivalent of a, of a modern flashbang grenade. In the best situations, the Highlanders would even angle to have the wind at their back, blowing the lingering, stinging black smoke of their muskets into their enemy's eyes, further confusing and disheartening them. Unencumbered by the long, unwieldy muskets, the Highlanders had great freedom of motion, and then, on the run, would form into wedges, picking the weakest points in the enemy line to charge home on. With no time to reload, and so much activity happening to distract them, not to mention no effective bayonet training, the Highland Charge proved effective even against superior numbers. Your average English soldier, you see, had no real skill with a sword, and the average English general failed to set up secondary firing lines or defenses. So once the charge broke through the first line, chaos would ripple through the entire battle formation until the panic switch was flicked. The Highland Charge succeeded because of a strong warrior culture and a belief in victory, but just as much it succeeded because of the maneuverability, the speed, and the unencumbered nature of the Gaelic kit. The Highlanders, you see, had no real military tradition in the sense of strict maneuver and decorum, which gave them the ability to surprise and frighten their opponents by springing upon them from terrain and directions that would seem impossible and gave the Highlanders the ability to choose where and when they attacked. So the question is, why was a Highland warrior so ferocious, light, and maneuverable? Well, their fierceness came from a hard life lived in hard places, but their maneuverability and speed was due mainly to their kit. Like warships today, the Highlanders sacrificed armor and defensive strength for speed and offensive capability. Wearing almost no armor, maybe a simple leather jerkin or wrap around the midsection, best for just glancing blows, and having legs that were completely bare, Highlanders were all about attacking and speed. Using their heavy woolen kilts as both protection against the elements and as bedding, they carried only what they needed meaning they were suited for short campaigns and for traversing over really hard and rocky terrain. Massive, two-handed claymore swords that were famous in Scotland for centuries were no longer in style in the 1600s and 1700s. The, the, the sword that was used more often would have been the, the single-handed, large, straight broadsword found 
tons of use. With its protective basket guard around the hilt, a Highlander could slash, stab, hack, and punch an enemy into submission. The one-handed sword worked in perfect conjunction with the Targ, an 18 to 21 inch small one-handed shield often made of layered wood, glued and stacked in opposite directions making a kind of early plywood. Strong and covered in cowhide, these little devils were perfect for taking an enemy blade and thrusting it off, or even better for pounding into the enemy's face or chest while your sword hand swept back for the killing blow. This, this mixture of speed, kit, and tactics won the day at Preston Pans and would actually doom the Scots at Culloden Moor. After their stunning victory at Preston Pans, Bonnie Prince Charlie was essentially in control of Scotland. Taking what money, weapons, ammo, and food were left by the government forces, the Jacobites began the march south into England, with hopes of like-minded people joining the cause along the way. The English cities of Carlisle and Manchester fell to the Scottish army, and the way to London was basically open, with little or no English military presence along the way. In early December in the small town of Derby, Charlie's army stopped, and a council of war was called and held in the second floor of the local tavern. The council met to decide the army's next steps, having received information that an English relief army was on the way, and with few recruits joining, let alone swelling their numbers, the decision was made to retire back to Scotland. Unbeknownst to the council, the Welsh Jacobites had finally made up their mind and were planning on joining, which would have given them a huge boost in men and material. Even more unfortunate for the Jacobite cause was the fact that had they been able to look into King George's court, they would have seen utter panic as the royal family was slinging their belongings and money onto ships ready to make a run for the continent. Had the Jacobites made a dash from Derby, only about 120 miles to London, it's possible that the city would have been theirs, or possibly the country would have followed. None of that happened, of course, and Bonnie Prince Charlie decided to turn his army around and head back for home, moving as quickly as possible as that rumored English relief army did in fact exist and was on its way. And the leader of that army was none other than the loser of the Battle of Fontenoy, the king's youngest son, the Duke of Cumberland. After his defeat and retreat to Brussels, Cumberland was recalled to England to deal with the 45. The king's son and a leader of men, regardless of his track record, Cumberland's appearance on the scene instantly bolstered public feeling and injected the English army with some much-needed morale. His slow and calm pursuit of the Jacobites gave the country a feeling of security, knowing he would in time catch up. Cumberland's pace was deliberate, and along the way he made sure to snuff out any rebel strongholds, recovering all the lost territory in England. He also took the time to make some key innovations to the tactics of his men, understanding that the socket bayonet gave him a marked advantage, and recognizing the weakness of the so-called Highland Charge, Cumberland drilled his men to hold their fire as long as possible. Then they would unleash a hellish volley and wait for the charge. As it hit home, the English infantry were trained not 
to bayonet the man in front of them, but instead to aim to the man on his right. This would catch the Jacobite victim by surprise and in his unprotected armpit, stopping the charges' ferocious momentum. Cumberland also kept his men well-fed and rested, understanding that the best weapon against the almost mystical Highland charge was actually just confidence. This well-trained and supplied English army finally caught up to and trapped its prey in the moorlands outside of Inverness. The Jacobites, underfed, undersupplied, and under no illusions, knew a fight to the death was in the offing. Culloden Moor is an unassuming, fairly flat field with some ridges, some like rolling hill- high grounds. It's a pretty plain patch of land. With Culloden Park and the River Nairn to the south and dense woods to the north and west, there were plenty of open spaces to form up into battle lines. Lots of clear area. The few structures there were scattered and provided some coverage, but not enough to work as defensive barricades. The one natural feature that would actually play a part in the battle was a large swampy bog patch in the middle of the field, which would have effectively uh, forced whichever army was crossing the field to pick a side and, and go around it. All in all, it was a good place for a set-piece battle, which had, at this point, become completely unavoidable. The Jacobites, in in an attempt to avoid that set-piece battle, had tried to perform a night attack, knowing that the English were drunk and partying in celebration of the Duke of Cumberland's birthday. But having trekked the 12 miles to the English camp, the Scots were in total disorder. Night attacks are always risky, but in 1745, they were damn near foolish. And once the Jacobite leaders realized how disarrayed their forces were, they turned around and marched back in the same night. So on the morning of April 16th, the Stuart forces lined up in their positions, and at this point, there was around five to 7,000 men, with some men having deserted, some men getting lost in the night march, or even just simply lying down out of exhaustion for some sleep in some tiny little gully and not hearing the call to arms. The Jacobite army was made up of mostly Scotchmen, some Irishmen, some regular French troops, and a smattering of other supporters. And the Scots had nine clans in their front line of battle, with the Athol clan all on one end and the MacDonald clan on the other end. And behind that line, there was a small, exhausted cavalry force and various minor foreign contingents. On either end and in the center, there were a small number of captured artillery guns, somewhere around 13 in total. Undermanned, undertrained, and undersupplied, they would be essentially decorative in the battle to come. In stark contrast to the Scots, the English arrived in well-formed columns, well-fed and well-slept. And they arrived around noon, lining up with their six to 9,000-man force made of mostly English with a good portion of loyal Scots and some German mercenaries into three even battle lines. The English dragoons, which were basically uh, 
cavalry that would dismount and fight as infantry wherever they ended up on the battlefield. Uh, So the English dragoons numbered around 800 and were ready to exploit any success. And the artillery of uh, 13 six-pounder cannons were placed in pairs in between each frontline regiment with a battery of mortars ready to rain hell down on the Scots further back from the line. The English artillery was also under the overall command of Colonel Belford, the most skilled gun commander in all of England, and his talents would definitely tell. So the two armies faced off at about 300 yards, two large bodies of men in massive long lines standing there motionless, and both sides knew that the other one was bent on killing each other. The shooting actually started with an artillery duel that was apparently completely one-sided. The English guns were quicker and far more accurate, silencing the Jacobite guns and then firing directly into the massed infantry. Using round shot, which could, with one blow, take out a whole row of men, in one eyewitness's words, there was, quote, cannonading on both sides, and the Duke being better served than that of the rebels did great execution, end quote. Execution. That's a very, very specific use of words. To my mind, it means it really must have looked like a death sentence as the Scots stood there getting smashed over and over and over by cannon fire. So fierce and violent was the English fire that the same writer, uh, William Warden, chronicled, quote, The Laird MacLachan had his abdomen laid upon his horse's neck by a cannon bullet. End quote. And somehow, still, the Scots stood there and did nothing. And that's because Bonnie Prince Charlie, even though he saw the slaughter of his men, for some reason expected the royal forces to move first, and so held fast for almost an hour until he was dragged into making some kind of decision. His already small army was being pounded by the enemy, and morale was suffering. So Charlie decided to use his only real tactic, the Highland Charge. Once the order was given, some men refused outright, knowing only death awaited them. But movement in a fight is always better than stillness, and so, so most men obeyed and began to move out of the artillery fire and towards the English line. In true Highland fashion, once these men reached the 40-yard range, the Scots fired and charged, but the smoke blew back into their own lines, causing confusion, which was exacerbated when one group of Scots, instead of staying in their line, moved around that bog we mentioned earlier, and so pushed the men next to them over, further muddling the entire line. This ripple effect pushed more men towards a low wall that skirted Culloden Park, which behind which stood a contingent of English soldiers that opened fire. This uh, flanking fire added to the volley of the front line, as well as the grape shot fired by the artillery. Grape shot is a large canister filled with musket balls meant to mow down large groups of men like a massive shotgun. And the Highland war cry was just cut short by the, the mix of grape shot, enfilading fire, and then frontal assault. The survivors of this withering firestorm finally reached the English line, 
targes raised, and swords ready, but the battle was already decided. Fierce hand-to-hand fighting was happening up and down the line, Warden writes, quote, They attempted to break the left, sword in hand, but our men stood so firm, the first line laid dead at their feet, who approached them, and the second and third, charging again, made a dismal havoc, end quote. This proves that Cumberland's tactics and secondary firing lines were able to handle the Scots, and any that broke through the first line were shot and killed almost immediately. The carnage and gore broke the Scots, and the whole army began to dissipate. The horrific end of all battles played out at Culloden. Quote, the horse and dragoons who were placed in the wings flanked the right and left and met in the center of the rebel army, and then it became a universal rout. End quote. As with most battles, the vast majority of the death came in the moments when one side fled. The Scots ran for their lives, knowing there would be likely no quarter given, and the English dragoons swarmed in all their shining breastplates and trumpeting horns. It was a scene not unlike something out of one of those famous fox hunt paintings. Cumberland did, in fact, order his men to give the Scots no quarter. The French, Irish, and British Jacobites were treated with the respect given to professional soldiers, but any wounded or captured Scots were killed on the spot. As many as a thousand Scots were killed on the field, and many more were chased down or hunted and then murdered by the English cavalry forces. As for the English, William Warden again gives us some insight, saying, quote, On our side, 50 were killed and 200 wounded. End quote. Probably these numbers are inflated or deflated in one direction or another, but they are likely fairly close. For the next five months, the Highlands were in turmoil, with the government hunting anyone believed to have had a hand in the rebellion, or any that, anyone that even assisted those that did. Settlements were burned, livestock killed, goods taken, and people executed if they had even the faintest whiff of Jacobite about them. Hangings and even death ships where prisoners were sent to London for trial, most to die in transit, were normal occurrences. This was the beginning of the so-called clearances, a period of time where the English systematically dismantled the Highland way of life. The idea was to so depopulate the areas of trouble and criminalize Scottish heritage that no future rebellion could be supported in England's backyard. Scottish land was given to the English lords, the Scots themselves were forbidden to wear tartans, speak Gaelic, or play the bagpipes. Huge numbers of Scots immigrated to the U.S. of their own accord, and in some places there were even incentivized immigration programs. It was an early form of modern ethnic cleansing. Highlanders could no longer bear arms or meet in public, and in 1747 the act of proscription meant the breaking of any of these laws were capital offenses. Years later, with the collapse of the tenant farms, the collapse of the cattle industry in Scotland, and with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, even the repeal of the act in 1782 did little to relieve the Scottish countryside, 
which was now irrevocably changed. The man who put an end to the Jacobite revolt was hailed as a hero in England. The Duke of Cumberland would forever after the battle be known as the Butcher, but that didn't stop Parliament from voting him an extra £200,000 a year, and the composer Handel dedicated his famous Hail the Conquering Hero to Cumberland. After the 45, Cumberland would rise and fall in power a number of times, eventually ending his days as a valued member of the king's advisors. On his death from a stroke in 1760, Cumberland, the butcher, was buried at Westminster Abbey. Bonnie Prince Charlie's flight from the field of Culloden has become the stuff of legend. Staying one step ahead of his pursuers and crisscrossing Scotland, there were songs written about him, from the Skyboat Song to Mogile Mere. The man had a 30,000-pound bounty on his head and yet was never turned in, which speaks to the loyalty and the honesty of the Scottish countryside. Charlie even got to the point where he was dressing in drag to escape the English, donning a wig and a dress as he pretended to be Betty Burke, an Irish maid, when fleeing from the Isle of Skye. Finally, after crisscrossing Scotland, he reached Loch Nan Um. And stepping off of what's now known as the Prince's Cairn, he boarded a ship for France, and he would never return to Scotland. Over the years, Charlie would try time and again to regain the throne, at one point even getting serious consideration from the French throne during the uh, Seven Years' War. But drink and blind idealism made them reconsider, and ultimately the venture never got off the ground. The final blow to his hopes came in 1766 when his father, the old pretender, died and the Pope recognized Charlie as the rightful heir to the Stuart line but did not bestow upon him the title of king and so ended any chance he had at the throne. Buying a palace in Florence, now known as the Palazzo del Pretendente, Charlie lived out the rest of his days also dying of a stroke. In 1788, the young pretender's body was interred in the crypt of St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, and so ended the Stuart hopes at ruling their own kingdom, as well as 200 years of royal upheaval in England. The story of the 485 is so cinematic that it's, it's not hard to see why swashbuckling tales of the time period are so popular. From uh, Rob Roy to Outlander, everyone likes a good Highlander yarn. But I think it's far more amazing and interesting to, to try and explore what could have been. And so when you're going to the Your Theories page at cauldronpodcast.com, think about some of these things. If the Scots were able to find a different tactic... Other than a frontal charge, maybe they beat Cumberland. If they are able to make some kind of movement or do something other than to stand there and get pounded away at by the, the English artillery, maybe they win the battle. I don't know. There's got to be something there that, that, that could be thought of. Uh, also, think about had Bonnie Prince Charlie succeeded, 
the Hanoverian line in England, and by extension the Windsor line, may never have existed. Imagine no Mad King George, no Queen Victoria, and therefore no network of royal families all over Europe, no modern-day Queen Elizabeth. And with a friendly family member on the English throne, there would probably have been no reason for a seven years' war with France. That's, 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 uh, I don't know, 85 years of hostility between England and France that would have probably just started, just dissipated, never existed. With the two sides being friendly, would there have been a push to expand their empires? Or is it possible that they just kind of consolidated and solidified their, their current holdings? On the continent, if France and England are allied, what happens to Prussia? and Russia, and Austria, and all the little countries in between. There would have been no world war with France in the 1750s, which means that there probably would have been no hiking of the colonial taxes in North America, or at the very least, those taxes would have come much later and been delayed. So does that mean that the American colonies don't rebel or rebel much later? What does a, a rebellion in 1815 look like? You know, there's no George Washington there. There's no Ben Franklin. There's no Jefferson. There's no... All the key players don't take part in that rebellion. Uh, and if the United States doesn't rebel, then it's likely that France doesn't have its rebellion. And there's no French Revolution. Then there's no terror. And then there's no Napoleon. And if there's no Napoleon, the whole history of the 1800s is changed, and obviously that comes with huge uh, implications. So those are just some thoughts. What, what changes in the world, what massive world changes could have come about had the Scots been successful with their Highland Charge here at Culloden Moor? These little things, think about them, let me know, write them in. Um, again, thanks for listening. Rate and review us on iTunes. Look for us on Facebook and Instagram at Cauldron Podcast. And really, I'm, I'm intrigued by this stuff. So please send us your thoughts and theories. Just go to the Your Theories page at cauldronpodcast.com and send them in. And there's a lot going on this month. So look for a mini episode in mid-June. And then an updated episode schedule by the end of the month, which will be on the campaign, the current campaign page on the website. So I'll have a list of all the upcoming battle casts, and, uh, and you'll be able to see what's ahead there. Thanks again for listening. Have a good day. <laughs>